It's really great to be with you today. If you kind of are with us and you're normally with us, then uh, you'll have been here last week and you'll have heard Chuck kick us off so well in our new series, The Cost, where we are going through the Gospel of Matthew and we're looking at how uh, the bar for discipleship is much higher than is perhaps comfortable for a lot of us in our life. We're going through this kind of idea of what it means to live a life that is all of me for all of him. And we're kind of unpacking that over this next season for us as a church. Um, and today, if you are with us, we'll be reading out of Matthew 5, 21 to 30. So if you've got a Bible, turn to that. It will pop up on the screen in a sec, or it's already there. Um, if you'd like a Bible as well, feel free to shoot a hand in the air. We can get one to you. None. Wonderful. What a holy lot. Um, so if you can join me, we're just going to turn to Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, which means idiot, basically, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and then remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then, come give your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Um, Fun stuff. (laughs) Let me pitch you guys a scene. Um, it's Monday morning. You had a great sleep yesterday. You had a really good time in church on Sunday. You wake up and you think, man, I feel very well rested. You get up, you go for a shower, you put some music on. You're whistling in the shower, literally whistling on a Monday morning in the shower. It's just one of those days. You get out of the shower, you have a nice healthy breakfast, you have a good time of prayer, you have a strong cup of coffee, and you think, this is a great day. You look out the window and you think, oh, That's a shame, it's raining a wee bit. Ah, well, it's fine. Uh, You realize you've got to walk to work in the rain because your car's in the garage. But you walk to the front door and you think, I'll just take an umbrella. Blast. Lent my umbrella to a friend. They told me they'd give it back to me and they haven't. Ah, that's a shame. That kind of takes the shine off of things. Well, it'll be fine. You sit out. The rain picks up. It gets heavier and heavier. You're walking to work and you're a little bit late because you were enjoying all that whistling, so you're rushing to work. And... Suddenly you're like, man alive, these people in front of me are the slowest walkers I've ever seen in my life. Oh, where are they going? I've got to be somewhere. You get past them, you kind of go to a light jog, and then a a car whizzes past you, it hits a puddle. It's like they intended to do it. The whole puddle, it's like a tidal wave and it hits you. The entire half side of your body is covered in muddy water. Great, I had a meeting this morning. I wanted to look sharp and professional. These trousers are brand new, cream chinos, ruined. You realize as well, I've got a hole in my shoe and my socks have been like soaking up moisture. I didn't bring a spare pair of socks and now 
this is just, this is bad. You get to the office and you think, I just want to see a friendly face to restart my day. It's your boss. You're late. It's one minute past nine. No, how was your weekend? No sarcastic, lovely weather you're having. You kind of let out a frustrated, <laughs> and you just like trudge to your meeting. You're not really taking anything in because you're just a little bit agitated about these wet socks. You have an annoying afternoon with your coworker. They keep asking you questions about your weekend. You're like, we're not really friends. I've got work to do. Can you just not do that? You get home and you think, right, simple dinner, quiet night to myself, and then just call this a day. This has been rubbish. Oh, great, fridge is empty, decent. I'll go back out into the rain to the shop, shall I? You go to the shops, cheese and pasta, that'll be fine. Oh, there's no cheese in the shop, wonderful. What kind of supermarket never has cheese? You go home, you get a call from a relative you've been ignoring uh, kind of messages from for a wee while. You pick up and you say, what do you want? And they say, oh, nice to speak to you too. It derails from there. Suddenly it's a shouting match. You hang up, you throw the phone against the, the bed, slam your door, light bulb goes, everything's dark. You silently walk into the kitchen. Your cat comes out before you as if expecting to be fed before you have. And you are just like a human pressure cooker at this point. And you turn around and you say, I hate you, cat. You've ruined my life. <laughs> and then you catch yourself in the window. And you stop for a second. And you're like, I'm shouting at a cat. I was whistling in the shower this morning. How on earth did I get here so quickly? Now, it's obviously a slightly comic scene. There's maybe some pockets of truth in there. I grew up with a cat, uh, read between the lines. Um, but all of us, in some way, can relate to that idea of anger and frustration building and building and building and building. And then it boils over in a moment and ruins everything. We can relate to that kind of feeling of, how did I get here? How did I go from feeling on fire for God on Monday, and then by Wednesday, I've blown it. I've made another mistake again. I thought I was past this. These matters of the heart, things like anger and lust, they cause us to lose our way so quickly. How do we get better at dealing with that stuff? How do we stop that from spilling out into our daily life and ruining everything? Because I don't know about you guys, I, I would quite like to get better at this discipleship stuff, this whole walking with Jesus, being like Jesus, becoming like him. I want to improve at that. As far as I'm aware, Jesus doesn't shout at cats. I want to live a life that is peaceful and pure and that ultimately allows Jesus to be at the center of all that I do. And yet I know in my own life, time and time again, I lose my way. And it can honestly sometimes feel impossible. Like I'll never get better at this. And I remember actually this passage, reading it as a kid, and thinking, what? I've been angry before. Have I murdered someone? This is ridiculous. How can I possibly be good if I can never even be angry? And it brought on these weird feelings of shame and kind of like I was, I don't know, stuck in this impossible trap. But thankfully, that's not really the case. Instead, what we see here in this passage, which um, it's worth noting, comes as part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is his series of teaching on what it means to be a disciple and what the kingdom of heaven looks like. What we get here isn't just some impossible morality teaching. It's not something to cause us to feel weighed down and trapped by shame and guilt. It's not some new bar for us to jump over. 
But instead, this is Jesus offering us a blueprint, really, of what it means to be fully human. Jesus is demonstrating that in the renewal of all creation in the kingdom of God, we can learn to live another way, where our patterns of behavior are renewed, where our hearts are renewed, and where this whole scale of anger from a harsh word to murder, or this whole scale of lust and desire from a lingering gaze to adultery doesn't control us anymore. Jesus is inviting us into a new way to be human, and that is a cause for hope, not shame, ultimately. So today, we're going to be looking at what it means to give our hearts to Jesus and to see them renewed. Um, However, first things there, first, what are we being asked to give up? Um, In the year of 2017, I was fortunate enough to go traveling for a little while. Um, I graduated uni the year before, and I had no idea what to do with my life, so I thought a sensible thing to do would be to book a one-way ticket to South America and just see how it goes. Um, I had no real time plan no financial plan, and no idea of when or if I was ever coming home. Um, I just kind of, I don't know, took to the romantic idea of hitting the road and seeing what happened to me. And it was great, honestly. It was so much fun. One of the best years of my life. I saw some phenomenal things. I met some great people. Um, But one thing I'll never forget is the night before I left. Possibly one of the most stressful experiences of my life uh, was packing my bag and was deciding what my only possessions were going to be going forward for the inevitable future. Because really, I wasn't thinking, cool, I'll be back in a wee while. So I was deciding what from my past is essential up until this point, and what do I have to live with going forward. And um, it's funny. You think a, a bag is much bigger than it is. It's not. When you have to do that, like, you realize how little you can take with you. You're saying goodbye to most of the things you've ever had. So I packed with me a few changes of clothes, a couple of books, a wash bag, some hiking gear, and like some tonics, tea cakes, or something from Scotland, uh, and genuinely not much else. I took all this stuff with me, and whilst it was a tricky and painful decision on that night, three months in, basically, I was in a youth hostel in Santiago, uh, and I threw away half the stuff because I realized I couldn't carry anymore. I had taken stuff with me that I couldn't take any further. I'd taken the stuff halfway around the world, and I'd reached a point where I was just like, why am I carrying this anymore? It had felt like everything in the moment to me. And yet, to be honest, once I left it behind in like a bin in Chile, it was nothing. It was so inconsequential. And I think it can be a bit like that in our walk with Jesus. We, uh, we set off in our journey with God, and we say our yes to him, and we turn our backs on our past behavior. We start afresh, and yet sometimes we still choose to carry that unnecessary stuff with us. We say, oh yeah, Jesus, I want to live my life for you. But before we go, I'll, I'll actually just take this with me. That hardness in my heart towards my sister, I'll take that with me. My hate for these people, I'll, I'll, I'll take that with me. I can't actually leave that behind just yet. That thing that I watch in the dead of night that nobody knows about, I'll I'll take that with me for now if that's all right. I can't leave it behind. And yet, what is anger, really, but like letting our emotions take control of how we act? I'm right, they, you, it is wrong, and I'm gonna act in a way that demands a response. And what is lust, really, but our desire to have 
what I want. It's, it's beyond sexual. It's actually just kind of any inappropriate desire for this thing means so much to me. I'm going to take it. That's mine. I want it. I'll have it. Thank you very much. And Jesus' call to discipleship to us is saying, would you leave that stuff behind? You've carried it with you, but actually, you don't need that where we're going. You can't be controlled by these things. Would you leave it behind for me? Would you unpack your bag a little and lighten the load? Let me show you what life is like without it. And I want to make this point that this is a repeated invitation when we walk with God. It's consistently him saying, just leave it. Both the murder and the adultery in this passage, there's an importance placed on acting quickly. Um, at the first sign of threat, you flare up in anger, deal with it immediately. Is this thing causing you to stumble? Get rid of it. We aren't called to be robots when we follow God. We're still humans, and in our lives, we will likely feel that quick pang of anger. It's quite likely we'll see somebody and we're like, oh, they're quite attractive. But what Jesus asks us to give up time and time again is that rise to aggression or that lingering gaze, that letting it fester and that appetite. And that's a challenge to us, all of us. This isn't just a new Christian thing. This isn't just a young person thing. This isn't just a specifically gendered thing. Actually, this is for every one of us in the room, a repeated invitation of, would you leave it? We can look over our shoulder in moments like this and think, ah, this is for the other people in the room, but if you're doing that, it's probably for you. And we live in a culture just now that feels addicted to anger and addicted to desire. Um, I'm going to be totally honest with you guys. I really struggle with watching the news lately. These past few years, I used to love it. I was like a modern studies kid. And I, I loved politics and all that kind of stuff. But lately, I've been finding it really hard to engage with that because it causes me to feel angry every single time. I will watch something feeling fine, and then five minutes later, I'm, I'm kind of pent up. And so the thing about anger is all I want to do is feed it, so I'll just watch more, or I'll read another article that backs up my opinion, and I'll just leave that whole transaction feeling agitated. It builds and builds and builds and builds, and then I'm shouting at cats. <laughs> and I don't want to go all kind of George Orwell on you particularly, but uh, it feels like our media knows this. It feels like we're kind of controlled by this a little bit. As long as we're kept angry, we'll keep on watching. The same with desire, really. I feel like every commodity in our culture is sexualized, from like peanut butter to Volvos. Um, <laughs> it's like the big pirates in society are controlling us through our desires. That's, that's basically actually how advertising works. It's this thing of like, this narrative of, hey, Here's the thing, you want this thing, you need this thing, you have to have this thing. Having this thing will make you feel this way, this way, this way. This is the only way to feel human and right. Society's message is let emotion and desire drive you. But we can't live a life of discipleship to Jesus and to anger and to lust. We can't have three masters. And you know, it can appear impossible. In the face of all that resistance, we can think, there's no way I can live a life like that. And yet, the good thing is, what we see in Jesus is the example of another way. Jesus on the cross took 
so much anger and hatred upon himself. And when the world, and often his closest followers, probably would have thought and even like wanted him to lash out in anger and be like, let's rise up victorious. He didn't fight back and he didn't let his circumstances affect how he acted. He was not consumed by anger or hatred. Instead, it was sacrifice. Instead, it was cost. But at the end of it, there was real victory and there was real hope and real freedom. There was the example of another way. And we are called as disciples to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, to be more like him. So when faced uh, with resistance in discipleship, we should look to basically get off our pedestal a little bit to put down anger and say, this isn't going to escalate anymore. Or to recognize a toxic desire in our life and think, actually, this thing is unhealthy. I'm not going to let this control me. The world suggests there's only one way, but there's not. There is another way. And so what does that look like in our context today? What would it mean for us to sacrifice anger? Or what would it mean for us to lay down lust and say, this no longer controls me? I mean, to be honest, that will probably require a little bit of self-awareness um, for all of us. It might be worth going home today and just having a, having a think. But here's a few examples. They're not extreme, but hopefully they apply to some of us in the room. Um, I say this with all the self-righteousness of somebody who doesn't actually drive, but goodness me, I've been in cars with so many people who are pretty quick to call another driver an idiot because they do something like go a little bit slow or they don't act exactly the way that you want them to act. The, the passage literally says, don't call people idiots. And yet we can be pretty like, quick to do that in a car. We could have a whole sermon on kind of our words and honor culture and all that kind of stuff, but we won't do that today. However, if your driving is causing you to struggle even a little bit with anger, bring that to God. And maybe try something practical like driving with the window down. See if you feel as confident calling somebody else an idiot in that situation. <laughs> or on the other hand, let's be real. If our relationship with Instagram is causing you to struggle with lust and desire and it's a slippery road, bring that to God. Maybe delete your account for a while. It wouldn't be the end of the world. And these things might seem trivial, but the point is we should be so desperate to see God move in our lives, that we would be willing to leave anything behind that acts as a distraction to that. Now, you might be thinking, goodness me though, that passage, there is some aggressive language in there. Cut my hand off, gouge my eye out. And in one sense, it is quite shocking language. But there is a whole lot of grace surrounding this stuff. With Jesus, where there is cost, there is also grace. We aren't alone in this. Um, like any good millennial boy, uh, in the past few years, I have really taken to looking after houseplants. <laughs> Some people in the room might be rolling their eyes, but if you're like under 30, there's probably a pretty good chance you spend a lot of your pocket money on candles and uh, like ferns. <laughs> um, it's a lifestyle, guys. Um, anyway, a pretty proud moment of mine recently uh, is my reviving of some dead plants. Um, I do lots of funny things with my plants. I bring them into the bathroom when I'm having a shower so they can get like humidity and stuff. Um, I sometimes put leftover coffee grinds into the pot. I'm not really sure that works, but 
I do it anyway. Um, but one thing I've done recently that actually has led to result is like pruning, which most of us will probably know is a gardening term. Basically just means like cutting off dead leaves that are restricting growth. And sometimes I think, ooh, been a little bit overzealous with that cut, Johnny. He's looking a little bit bald. Um, but more often than not, two weeks after, the plants are thriving. They've taken on a new sense of life and they are growing like never before. Which seems counterintuitive, maybe, cutting back the plant to produce more growth. And yet, with this passage and with passages like it, like the end of Mark 9, it says similar stuff. My mind is drawn to John 15. It's a passage that in my own life I've turned to time and time again, and I find it such a source of life. It's really just the story of God as a master gardener. And John 15 reads, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And um, God's work in our life isn't like some kind of like hacksaw to a rebellious hand kind of thing. But it is much more like a skilled gardener, pruning a tree that he wishes to see grow. Without God's pruning work, I can do nothing. I'll grow to nothing. I'll be consumed by the other things that I let control me. I mean, this is a slight side note, but I sometimes find I'm walking down the street and I see people's faces and it's like they're like contorted. It's like they've kind of gone the dark road of anger or something else. Lust or desire or bitterness or pride or whatever. And it is physically affecting how they look. Um, I don't know if you ever see like, like mangled trees in a forest. They're often like twisted and bent because they're looking for like a certain source of light. And they're all twist out of shape to get there. And it's like sometimes we as people, we twist ourselves so much out of shape looking for the wrong things. And it physically affects us. Whereas if we were just a little bit more willing to give stuff up and to be open to pruning, we would not really twist, but we would just grow upward in the right way. And it's important for us to know, though, that when there is cost with God, there is also grace surrounding it. If anyone um, wishes to do any complimentary reading alongside this sermon series, which I would actually really encourage you to do, you'll get probably a lot from the experience. Um, I would strongly recommend you get hold of The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, it would take an awful long time for me to talk about Bonhoeffer and, and all that stuff, and it probably serves a bit of a distraction. However, his life story, and in particular his uh, works in The Cost of Discipleship and Life Together are phenomenal, and your year would probably be made better by reading them. Um, He's the sort of person that when I get to heaven, I would love to buy him a drink and just ask him about life. And I would suspect there will probably be a pretty long queue of people wanting to do the same. Anyway, in The Cost of Discipleship, he writes this about God's pruning work in our lives. When the Bible speaks of following Jesus, it's proclaiming a discipleship which will liberate mankind from all man-made dogmas, 
from every burden and oppression, from every anxiety and torture which afflicts the conscience. If they follow Jesus, men escape from the hard yoke of their own laws and submit to the kindly yoke of Jesus Christ. But does that mean we ignore the seriousness of his commands? Far from it. We can only achieve perfect liberty and enjoy fellowship with Jesus when his command, his call to absolute discipleship, is appreciated in its entirety. Only the man who follows the command of Jesus single-mindedly and unresistingly lets his yoke rest upon him, finds his burden easy, and under its gentle pressure receives the power to persevere in the right way. The command of Jesus is hard, unutterably hard for those who try to resist it. But for those who willingly submit, the yoke is easy and the burden is light. His commands are not grievous. The commandment of Jesus is not a sort of spiritual shock treatment. Jesus asks nothing of us without giving us the strength to perform it. His commandment never seeks to destroy life, but to foster, strengthen, and heal it. When there is cost with God, there is also so much grace. Notice that God um, prunes the fruitless branches and the branches with fruit. The way of discipleship is to give the good and the bad, the life and the lifeless to God. It's to say, this is my everything. He's a careful gardener and we need to trust his cutting. It's not repressive. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's all about further life. And discipleship in one sense is simply to remain in the vine and to be open to the work of the gardener, to the pruning in your life. And through that act of submission and laying it down to grow and to develop into all that God wants for you. To ask God to create in me a clean heart time and time and time again. Um, and lastly, I'd like to close on this point, and it's, it's a real quick one. We, uh, we talked about kind of the cost and the grace. I kind of want to talk about why now, on top of just our own improvement and stuff, and what it does for us. I was, uh, I was listening to a podcast earlier this week, and it was a Q&A with a bunch of really wise and thoughtful uh, pastors from around the world at a recent kind of alpha leadership conference. Anyway, they were talking basically about living a life reliant on the Spirit. And there was this Australian guy called Mark Sayers. He's a kind of pastor, sociologist, very smart guy um, from a church in Melbourne. And he shared some advice on seeing God move powerfully in our culture. And he said this line, which is stuck in my head all week. Uh, and he said, personal renewal leads to corporate renewal. And I think it'll come up, but I'll say it again anyway. Personal renewal leads to corporate renewal. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I have felt fired up hearing a lot of this new vision that Chuck and Taryn are bringing since coming back um, about pursuing the presence and the glory of God. I feel like hungry and expectant in a new way that I've, I've not previously felt in my life. I feel exhilarated at the thought of what Aberdeen would look like if God was to break out and we were to see our city renewed. For people who are lonely and broken to know joy beyond their wildest imagination and to have hope. For people to have dreams and visions in the middle of the night and think, oh my goodness, who is this Jesus? I need to know him and come running into church. For people across the world to hear Aberdeen and think, that's a place where God's glory is. God is up to something there. 
I want to see thousands of people in our city come to know Jesus for Rosemount to be a different place in a year's time. I want to see kind of a transformative breaking of peace and a lowering of crime. I want to see radical hospitality and kindness and gentleness in people. Everywhere I turn, I want to see Aberdeen become more like the kingdom of heaven. I really want that stuff, and I feel really excited for this season that we're in, and I reckon a bunch of us probably do too. But you know, it starts in the heart. It starts in us. If we want to see God move powerfully in our lives, that can't be separated from a bringing afresh of our hearts to him and saying, would you make my heart clean? Would you renew me? It's a scary thought, but if I'm known in my friendship group as somebody who's pretty angry and pretty bitter, or if my behaviors and desires are no different from everyone else, then I'll block people from seeing Jesus at work in my life. If people think of us as a group of people and they think, yeah, they're just like everyone else, actually. They, I think they go to church, but they don't really seem any different. They're pretty selfish. They sleep around a bunch. They're not true to their word. They get really judgmental of people and closed off. If that's the reality, then I'm afraid we're blocking the work of God in this city with my friends. I want to be made new. I want to have a peaceful and a pure heart that is so opposite to the culture of our time that it causes people to see Jesus. I'm desperate to see renewal in our city. I want to see God move in my own eyes in the next two years in ways that I will never forget. But it starts here, and then it goes everywhere. It's got to be all of me for all of him. So if you'll uh, join me, I'd like us to kind of stand and, uh, and we'll pray.